0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform
0: focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities.
1: To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
0: Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me, Chris Ye. He is a venture capitalist at Blitzscaling Ventures, as well as the co-author along with Reid Hoffman of Blitzscaling, a book that explains how to build world-changing companies like Amazon, Alibaba, Airbnb, and Record Time. He is a writer, investor, and entrepreneur. And Chris has had a ringside seat in the world of startups and scale-ups since 1995. And I was just talking to... Chris, before we went live, that I recently listened to his book. I've been back on the road traveling again, not as much as I used to. And I'll be a huge Audible fan. And it's really fun to interview him because Reed does a little bit of, of the book, but Chris does the majority of it. So Chris has been living in my head for the past week. And now I'm interfacing with him. And he's got
1: just an awesome voice for radio. So Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate being invited on and I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so let's talk about blitzscaling a little bit. It's become de rigueur. It is the method by which VC-backed firms, especially in the tech space, dominate the market. Would you maybe
1: just kind of give broad strokes what it is? Absolutely. So a number of years ago, back in, let's call it 2015, what Reed and I noticed was this phenomenon of these companies growing faster than ever before. This was shortly after Aileen Lee had come up with the term unicorn. And so the big question was, why are there so many more of these? What on earth is going on? And we looked over Reed's own career, which of course includes companies like PayPal and Facebook and then Airbnb. And we said, well, what is the common thread? And what we ended up concluding is that we live in a world where there are more and more winner-take-most markets. And when you have a winner-take-most market, your goal should be win the market. Because if you do, you become the enduring market leader and you can print money for decades. And that's what's made these companies so valuable, either the ability to print money for decades or the possibility that investors believe in that they'll be able to print money for decades. And so what we said about doing with the book Blitzscaling is to explain, well, if that is in fact the goal, then the right strategy for getting there is to focus on speed to scale ahead of everything else. So focusing on speed in the face of uncertainty over the value of efficiency. And in order
0: to do that, you purely focus on speed to market and market capture, right? And you leave other things on the sidelines, which is counterintuitive to what many people have learned in business school or what the traditional business building model
1: has been, correct? That's right. We say that so many of the things we do are counterintuitive because, again, why would anyone ever do something like prioritize speed over efficiency if you don't know what's going to happen, if you're not certain of the outcome? That sounds crazy. It's very risky. But the point is, when there's such a big prize to be won and when there's a lot of competition, it's riskier not to take risk. And we see companies today where if the company is growing rapidly, oftentimes there'll be issues, there'll be complaints, maybe the customer service people are overwhelmed. And nowadays, investors are like, oh, good, that means they're going fast enough. As opposed to saying, oh, you've got to slow down, you've got to fix it. They're like, no, it looks like you're being appropriately aggressive. Because if you're being appropriately aggressive in a blitzscaling environment, at least some things are broken all the time.
0: And that really leads to a culture that we've seen play out amongst business recently, where first is first, second is second, and then there really is nobody else within that space, right? And so it's speed to market and leveraging these networks to get as much market
1: share as possible. Absolutely. And again, even though first is first and second is second, second is still so far below first that we sometimes call these Ricky Bobby markets after Talladega Nights, because Ricky Bobby's motto, which he inherited from his dad, was If you ain't first, you're last. And what it means is just, yeah, second place is pretty good, but it is still orders of magnitude worse than first. And so first is the overwhelming prize. And when you talk
0: about getting to scale, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Could you maybe break that down a little bit for us? When we're talking about the scale of some of these firms and companies, I'd love for you to unpack that a little.
1: Absolutely. So the way we thought about scale is there are actually a couple of different measures. I think that when people just say scale, they sort of wave their hands and everyone kind of expects what it is. And we says there's actually three different ways to measure the scale of a company. The first way is to measure it in terms of the number of users or customers. So for example, a company like Instagram had 100 million users when it was acquired by Facebook. That's scale. Or a company that has 10,000 customers paying it $20,000 a year. that scale as well. And that's certainly one way of looking at it. And sometimes these companies can be pretty small in terms of number of people, despite being large in terms in terms of number of users. The next way of thinking about it is to look at it in terms of revenues. Because if you think about it, the amount of money that a company brings in is highly related to a lot of other things in terms of what kind of processes have to be in place, And how much structure do you have to have? And the final thing is just, and this is the most common measure that we use, just the size of the organization. Because as it turns out, it's the simplest and easiest proxy for everything else. The number of users you have is generally going to increase with scale, whether it's user scale, customer scale, or revenue scale. Because you need people to serve those customers. You need people to manage those systems. There are exceptions. As I mentioned, Instagram sold for a billion dollars with a 100 million users and 13 employees Seven of whom had been hired in the previous two weeks, right before the sale. So they can absolutely vary. But when you think about scale, you should always think about those three things. Users and customers, revenues, and ultimately employees. And is it appropriate for every industry and every product type? No, it's not. So the key thing is there has to be a reason why there is a winner-take-most market. There has to be some dynamic that makes this happen. Usually, this is because of network effects. So in the technology industry, as the number of users or customers grows, then oftentimes network effects cause the value per individual user to grow. So basically, if you think about uh, Facebook, for example – Facebook with one user is useless. Facebook with a million users is getting somewhere. Facebook with a billion users is a utility that people can't seem to stop using no matter what they say. And so that's an example of how the network value increases. And it doesn't just increase overall, it increases per user. So each individual user becomes more and more tied to the product. So from that perspective, that's where that winner-take-most market is coming from. There is one other way that sometimes works. We talk about it in the book where we have a land grab effect. So, for example, during the oil, shale and gas, shale, oil and gas boom in the 2000s, The companies that did well were the ones that went out there and literally grabbed the land, signed as many mineral rights leases as possible on these shale formations that people thought were previously worthless. And so if you, in fact, do get to keep a customer or user forever after you get them, whether because of contractual reasons or momentum or the fact that they are integrated into somebody's infrastructure, that's also a good reason to blitz scale.
0: But there are some – Challenges and organizational issues associated with moving this quickly, right? We'll get into the capital part of it later, but from the human capital perspective, what are some of the issues that you need to overcome here?
1: Well, it absolutely is a challenge. And I was just speaking with somebody today who is the chief people officer of a blitzscaling company. It's a company that began this year with 125 employees and currently has 600. So it gives you some sense of the kind of scale that you have. And there are problems all over the place. So for example, a company like that, oftentimes you have people in the wrong places, right? You had people who were appropriate for one line of business and now you've pivoted your business around. This happened at Netflix when they hired the world's best DVD handlers And then they became a streaming service so that's one kind of issue another kind of issue is just what company grows that quickly normal management practices are thrown out the window and so you end up in an extremely disorganized fashion do you have pay grades do you have a compensation system that makes sense for everyone no you just paid everyone whatever you could because you were too busy just trying to grow and then the final thing is as the company grows and this is very important We have this principle called hire Ms. Right Now, not Ms. Right. Just because someone was great for one particular stage of the business doesn't mean they're going to scale to the next stage. And so you've got to constantly be keeping an eye on the extent to which people are still appropriate for their roles and, if necessary, bringing in new people while trying to hang on to the old people. Because guess what? The people who are there already probably have a lot of great strengths that can be used for the company, just not in the role that their official job title would now put them in.
0: So given this is a widely accepted business practice, but still relatively nascent. Other than your book, is there actually... And I know you teach a class at Stanford with Reed on this, but is there a playbook? Is this a mature enough methodology where you have people that have gone through these cycles that can now say, retrospectively, this is at least some
1: guidelines of what you should do and should not do? Well, that's really funny. So one of the things that we intended to do was to put out a scaling playbook. And that would have gone over all the details of here's what you should do. We actually started off writing that playbook in 2015 because we thought that's what people wanted. And then we took it to our publishers. They're like, actually, people need to first understand what this scaling is before they actually get a scaling playbook. So we will probably circle back around and release that at some point. We also do have something called the Blitz Scaling Academy, which is just at blitzscalingacademy.com. Which is a community of people who are interested in blitz scaling with courses that go into greater depth with live events so that people can ask their questions. And that's where we're sort of coalescing and crystallizing the experiences that we've had.
0: I'd be curious your opinion. How many of these firms that have gone through blitz scaling methods? Are the entrepreneurs, the original entrepreneurs and the founders still involved in the C-suite?
1: So that's an interesting one. It used to be much lower, right? And once upon a time, the startup model typically had the founders being replaced by, quote, unquote, gray hair or adult supervision. Which are both probably biased ways of, of looking at it. And now increasingly we see the founders retaining a lot of the power. And we could, we could see this, you know, in the fact that once upon a time, Steve Jobs was replaced, literally perhaps the greatest CEO that we've ever had. And he was replaced by quote unquote professional management. But nowadays, obviously we have the Mark Zuckerbergs and Elon Musks of the world who are continuing to run their companies. So it is absolutely the case, I think, that the presence of the founder CEO is much higher than ever before. However, it is also true that the founders beyond the CEO may or may not remain with the company. It depends on whether or not they're able to scale. So obviously, we know very famously that Facebook had a number of founders who did not necessarily stick with the company over time. And that's true for a lot of other companies as well. So I think that one of the expectations we set when it comes to blitzscaling is, look, you know, it's hard to grow and most human beings cannot scale at an exponential level. So you should expect with every order of magnitude of growth that you probably have to replace half your management team and that it's difficult for someone to stay in the same role at the company over its entire life cycle. So you have to understand and be flexible. That just seems like an immense amount of collateral damage. All
0: in the name of of growth. After you've interacted with these companies and seen this play out,
1: you still believe it is a sustainable, viable business model? So I think the key question is sustainable and over what period of time? So one of the things we tell people is blitz scaling is a temporary strategy, not a permanent strategy. It's a temporary strategy that applies to specific markets, specific products, specific business units at some point in time. And that's the point in time in which the opportunity is there to win the winner-take most market. Once you've won, you've got to think about scaling it back because it doesn't make sense to keep prioritizing speed above efficiency when you've won the market. And it doesn't make sense to keep going all out if it looks like you're starting to hit the boundaries of the overall market size. So we do view this as something that you just cannot sustain for a decade. You just can't spend a decade sprinting at this all-out speed and expect to avoid burnout. It's just not realistic. But what we do believe is that ultimately when you're going after an important winner take most market, it's the right strategy to take because if you don't take the strategy and someone else does, they may very well win. And if they win, then it doesn't matter how well you executed along the way, you won't have an important company. So yeah, it is a strain and blitzscaling is uncomfortable and blitzscaling is exhausting, which is why you try to only deploy at the right periods of time. But if you don't deploy it, you're unlikely to win the race. It's sort of like the afterburners on a fighter jet. When you need to get there, you need to get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, this conversation happening now where Zuckerberg's really the only founder left of some of these large, you know, recent tech companies that is still running the day-to-day operations of the firm. And I'm not going to comment on his managerial structure or style, but they are having some challenges and issues right now. And you do have to wonder, you know, Maybe some of these older business practices of the public CEO is not the same person as the founder out of the garage. Maybe there is some validity there.
1: Now, fortunately, I am not a board member or shareholder in Facebook, except indirectly. So I can absolutely comment on this. I think that it is fascinating. Obviously, the people who we would think of as his peers, and that's the Larry Pages and Jeff Bezos of the world, have, in fact, stepped back, right? Mark is sort of the one who is left standing and still going. And that's largely because he has this burning desire to run the company and control it and do things the way he wants to do it. And in fact, he has this dual class share structure, which means he could do anything he wants. If tomorrow, he said, guess what, from now on, Facebook, or rather Meta, or whatever they're calling it these days, is now a membership gym. The board of directors couldn't do anything about that. He could just go ahead and disassemble everything if he wanted to. And my criticism is, when you give someone absolute power and they don't have to answer to anybody, are they really going to make the best decisions? I think the answer is no. I think that you tend to reach good decisions by considering a variety of inputs. And in somebody who doesn't have to consider any inputs, that's dangerous. Now, mind you, it's paid off for Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg quite a bit in the past. His unitary control of the company is what allowed Facebook to move so quickly in certain cases. They bought Instagram over a weekend. Basically Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't let Kevin Systrom go until he said yes. He just kept upping the amount of money until the until Kevin Systrom felt compelled to say yes. And famously earlier on we wrote about this when Facebook fell behind in the mobile side Mark Zuckerberg got up and said listen we're not going to do any new feature development until we have a native mobile app. Period. And they spent 2 years without developing any new features. Now it is Difficult to do that and make it stick unless you are someone who has this tremendous unitary power. But the fact is, it doesn't feel like he's been using that power wisely. If you think about things like what's happened with social media, so much of the criticism is around Facebook's uh, algorithms. And I've leveled my own criticisms against Facebook. My basic point is, listen, by focusing on user engagement and not putting any moral value on things, then you're basically saying – And telling your people, you have to increase engagement, which generally means increasing anger and outrage as much as possible. And the frightening thing is the level of anger and outrage on Facebook may may reflect the fact that there have been people all along at the company who've done their best to tamp those things down, even as the overarching strategy was engagement at all costs, whatever it takes, get the engagement up. So I think that there are very legitimate criticisms of Mark Zuckerberg as a CEO and of his leadership at Facebook. I don't think it's so much the issue that it's the founder who's still in charge as it is giving someone absolute power.
0: I do think the dual share construct is problematic. And can you separate the move fast and break things mentality
1: from blitzscaling? So the two are very similar because I I will explicitly say this. When you blitzscale, things are likely to break. But the big thing you have to do is to be a responsible blitzscaler. That's one of the reasons why we put an entire chapter about responsible blitzscaling in, because we don't want everyone to take the message away that the consequences are irrelevant and that you could just ignore them. What we do say in, in responsible blitzscaling is, look, you know, yeah, there are going to be problems along the way, but the level of problem you're willing to tolerate is going to depend on the industry and the fallout. So a classic example of a company which really ignore all these, is if you look at Theranos, that's obviously in the, the news quite a bit recently. Let's leave aside the fact that it appears that the founder was just defrauding everyone and lying to everyone. But the big issue is that it's a question of safety. They were saying we're going to provide blood testing results about medical conditions to patients who are going to make decisions that could potentially be life or death decisions based on those results. Well, it's not okay to say, well, maybe it'll work, right? It's different to say, okay, we have a video game like Candy Crush and sometimes it goes wrong. Whoop, big whoop, right? That's okay. But when you're talking about people's lives and you're going to give them a diagnosis that will control whether or not they undergo treatment, whether or not they are going to live or die, you have a much greater degree of responsibility.
0: So to tie it back to what you were talking about with Zuckerberg and Facebook, Does culture
1: matter less or more when you're scaling at this type of speed? Culture matters more, but it's not clear to me that Facebook had the right culture. So the reason culture matters more is that even the greatest individual autocrat is limited in their ability to exercise power in an organization because they simply cannot be everywhere every point at every point in time. Right? You need somebody to carry out that. You need somebody to carry out your will. You need somebody to enforce your vision. And of course, you could do it if you're a dictator with a secret police and things like that. But that's not the way things work in the world of business. The way things work in the world of business is you develop a culture. And that culture, which expresses the values and how you you do things is the way that even when you're not in the room, people know, oh, this is how we do things at Apple, or this is how we do things at Google, or this is how we do things at Airbnb. And the culture you build is the way you most directly affect people's actions and decision making process. So that's why culture is so important. It becomes even more important because the more your company grows, the less your individual interactions with the employees can actually shape what's going on. And so having the culture to be able to let people make their own decisions and have those decisions line up with the company's values are so critical. Now, the issue with something like a Facebook is you create a culture which just focuses relentlessly on making numbers. It's an incredibly competitive organization. It's got some of the smartest people in the world. But if you basically take away the concept of moral valence – then you end up in a situation where bad things happen and people are like, well, you know, it's an acceptable collateral damage.
0: It reminds me of the ring of Gyges, right? This concept of what will you do if if you're invisible? And as a analogy to your own moral and ethical code internally, and it would seem to me that, and we're just hammering Facebook here, but it would seem to be at a firm like that when nobody is around to your point we're going to try to hit our quarterly numbers and crush everybody else and get as much global engagement as we possibly can at any cost.
1: Right. And the best way to think about it is the culture of Facebook is the culture of winning, but to what purpose, right? It's always been beat the competitors, achieve, grow, all these things, but to what purpose and at what cost? I think it would be relatively easy for Facebook, maybe not so much at this point, but I still think Facebook could say, you know what? We can we have some of the brilliant minds on this planet. We can figure out a way to tell when people are interacting with Facebook because they're angry, and when they're interacting with Facebook because they're feeling inspired and good. I, you can even just tell by the the way they pound the keys, how quickly things are being typed, whether or not someone's angry or happy, right? There's very few people who are like typing very furiously and quickly with lots of exclamation points because they're happy. They're even they just taking a little more time with that. And if instead of just pursuing engagement of any kind to maximize it, and we instead said we want to maximize positive interactions and minimize negative interactions, that would cause Facebook to grow more slowly, that would reduce their profitability, but it would make them a better force for good in our society, and I think that if Mark Zuckerberg were thinking long-term, then he would realize that it's actually better to take a short-term hit than to just keep going the way he's been going.
0: So it begs the question, Given the split-scaling concept and, and companies like Facebook leveraging it, you said yourself it's not sustainable long-term, but
1: is this what the outcome looks like when you try to sustain it over a long period of time? So I think that you know, if you try to sustain over a long period of time, Facebook is not what you get. What you get is something like Chesapeake Energy, where if you try to blitz scale when it longer makes sense, you run into serious economic problems. Sadly, Facebook's business model is continuing to respond to scaling. Chesapeake Energy, so just a quick note on Chesapeake Energy, was founded by a guy named Aubrey McClendon, and he was a driving force, and he was a landman, which meant that he was one of the guys who figured out how to get the mineral rights. And so the basis of Chesapeake Energy's success during his reign was we went out there and we bought those mineral rights for the shale, oil, and gas back when everyone thought they were worthless. But the conclusion he reached was that The goal and the way you succeed is just always buy all the mineral rights you can regardless of the price. And the problem, as Reed is fond of saying, is success imprints more strongly than failure. And so because of that success, McClendon was convinced always, always, always have everyone go out and buy the mineral rights. And so even as the company was minting money, he was pouring it all into buying more mineral rights. But buying mineral rights at cost that were 10x or 100x what he was buying them originally. And he eventually drove Chesapeake essentially into bankruptcy. He lost his own fortune several times. He ended up creating, getting kicked out by the board, created his own company, spent yet more billions of dollars buying mineral rights leases, was indicted by the federal government for fraudulently trying to manipulate those auctions, and accidentally drove his SUV into a freeway overpass at 70 miles an hour the day after he was indicted. And that is an example of what happens when somebody does not read the signals and say, you know what, this is not something that we do forever. This is something we do while the circumstances dictate it.
0: It's blitzscaling an outcome of this jet fuel growth within the venture capital ecosystem of easy cash, lots of capital putting to work, or is it a product
1: of it? Both. It is Both. So blitz scaling and the success of companies like an Amazon and Alibaba and Airbnb are the reason why so much money has poured into venture capital. It is also helped by the fact that we are in this broad macroeconomic environment where there is colossal amounts of money that's been printed, where yields are really low, where if people are looking for returns, they cast their eyes about. I mean, they've had incredible returns in the public markets, but they look at the private markets and they're even more enticed. They're like, wow, I got to put money there. And so the venture capital industry is many times larger than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, I can remember a time when the entire venture capital industry was $5 billion a year. Now that's one quarter worth of Tiger Global. So we are living in very different times. And what's happened is As I mentioned, blitzscaling produced returns that convinced people to pour more money into venture capital, but venture capital firms with tons of money have attempted to blitzscale more and more. And the exemplar here, of course, is SoftBank, which tried to blitzscale companies like WeWork. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The thing is, you cannot blitzscale every company. Not every market is a Ricky Bobby market. Not every company is suitable for doing this. It's not magic pixie dust that you can sprinkle on anything and turn it into $100 $100 billion outcome.
0: And this is exactly where I wanted to go with you is you know these companies burn through massive amounts of cash, huge amounts of capital. They have great revenue. But when you try to apply it to an old line industry like real estate, you can't just say you're a prop tech company because that's not really what it is when you're signing these long-term leases in midtown Manhattan. Exactly. And you end up being the largest landlord in a major metropolitan area. It just doesn't align itself with the concepts that you outline in your book.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that drives me up the wall when it comes to venture capital is when people say they're a pattern matcher. You've probably heard people say, oh, we're really good pattern matches, really good seeing the patterns. Or maybe they say, I've seen this movie before. And what they mean is this feels similar to something I previously saw. And therefore, I think it's going to work the same way. And what I call that is laziness. It is an inability to actually explain why you believe something is going to happen. And in the case of something like WeWork, for example, the belief was, well, you know, if something grows really quickly, it's worth a lot of money. And I'm like, yes and no. Like what really matters in the end, I have a traditional business education, went to Harvard Business School. And I do believe that at some point in time, a discounted cash flow analysis does apply that the value of a company is based on its future stream of cash flows. Now, the thing is, people may disagree on how to interpret it, right? Our notion of traditional multiples, a multiple on sales, a multiple on earnings is based around a normal set of growth and a normal kind of gross margin and all these things being normal. And a lot of these blitzkilling companies are highly abnormal. Now, the way I tell people to look at this is to say, look, when you're looking and valuing a blitzkilling company, you have to value both the financial value that you can see today and also the strategic value that may be being built up. And that strategic value at some point in time needs to convert into financial value. And a great example of this is let's take a look at two businesses which are very much in Elon Musk's empire, which is Tesla and SpaceX. And Tesla is now one of the world's most valuable companies. It's made Elon Musk one of the world's richest people. I would argue that his estimated net worth is a dramatic underestimate because the value of his stake in SpaceX is probably even greater. And if we look at these two companies, the question is their strategic value and can that strategic value be converted into financial value? In the case of Tesla, Tesla, of course, did pioneer electronic cars and does build some pretty great cars. But is that a competitive advantage that simply cannot be overcome? Other people can make electric cars. They may not be as nice. But the entire automotive industry is going nuts trying to build it up. Maybe you could argue, well, Tesla has a lower cost of capital because they can just raise money. Maybe. But it doesn't feel like that is something that guarantees victory. It's not a winner-take-most market where if Tesla bulls are to be believed, if I look out into the future, in 20 years, 90% of all cars will be Tesla's. It's not clear to me that that's a bet I'd make. On the other hand, if we look what SpaceX has accomplished, it's really freaking hard to launch rockets into space. We've seen how much money Jeff Bezos has poured in just to get up to space, right, just to get close to it. Or Richard Branson, he's been doing rockets for decades and must just zoom past them all. And so in looking at that, I look at that and say, you know, there's huge strategic value to having a multiple order of magnitude cost advantage over any other orbital payload launcher. And they're using it right now because there's only so many payloads to be launched. They're using it right now to build Starlink, which could effectively be uh, a near global monopoly on internet access for anyone who is on the go or outside of a large metropolitan areas, which is a pretty damn big market. So I look at that and I say, there is clear strategic value and a clear way to translate that strategic value into financial value. With Tesla, I find that far less clear.
0: Let's go back to the VC ecosystem because this is what I find fascinating. You have groups like SoftBank and now with Tiger and some of these other firms, is there does true venture capital investing even exist any longer when you have VC firms like Sequoia having private equity evergreen fund models, when you've got hedge funds like Tiger playing in the VC space and you've got SoftBank which is almost operating like its own investment banking investing blitzscaling
1: firm? So I would argue there continues to be, quote unquote, traditional venture capital investments happening all the time. And what's happened is the entire industry has sort of redefined the stages of the company. I mean, I remember when I was an entrepreneur for the first time, this was back over 20 years ago, back in the dot-com boom, and I think I raised a $3 million Series A. Nowadays, people would call that a pre-seed round. So we've redefined things around quite a bit, right? Traditional Series A investing circa 1999 is now pre-seed investing today. And we still see traditional venture capital in the sense of investors who lead around and who work hard to help build that company and get it to a point where it's reduced the risks. And that's what we see pre-seed and seed investors doing today. We see investors like First Round Capital, for example, actually stick with their traditional baliwick of seed stage investing. And there's plenty of other seed firms that have arisen. Meanwhile, a lot of the old line traditional firms, even the Sequoias, they've dramatically changed their structure, are still deriving most of their value from traditional Series A investments putting money into companies that are not yet scaling, but have the opportunity either because of their strategic position or because of the incredible team or both or what have you to build the great technology companies of tomorrow. And that's fantastic. That is what I call traditional venture capital. But what is going on is that at the series B, C and especially D, E, F and so on and so forth. These are all companies that are do, raising money at valuations that would have made them public companies a generation ago, right? A generation ago, if there was no way a privately held company worth $2 billion, right? That would be a public company. A public company is a company that would go public for like $500 million in market cap. So we've ended up in a situation where a $500 million company is now a series C or D round, And as a result, it acts more like a public company investment than traditional venture capital. So I agree that the soft banks and the tiger globals of the world do not act like venture capital. But I would also argue that what they've done is they realized, wait a minute, because of the way we've had this sort of shift, which again, I compare to the way that a, a Toyota Corolla of today is double the size of a Toyota Camry from 25 years ago. What they realized is, hey, wait a minute, while these things are ostensibly venture capital, they're not, and we can apply a different model, which is why Tiger's high velocity hedge fund model of invest in all these companies, don't take a board seat don't tell them what to do, just invest in them passively, is working because those companies are already quite far along. They've got hundreds of of employees, they've got millions or maybe even billions of revenue, and they don't need the same kind of care and feeding that a pre-seed or seed deal does today.
0: Given the nature of the regulatory environment, as well as just this near-term quarter-to-quarter thinking on returns... Within the VC community and entrepreneur community today that you exist in, is it at all appealing to be a
1: public company any longer? So you ultimately do have to become a public company for the sake of the investors and the employees. Well,
0: what about this robust secondary pre-IPO market that can give you access to liquidity? You might take a haircut, but the valuations are pretty decent. And it's a fairly mature
1: space now. It's a fairly mature space for the companies that are you know what I call Public companies, not in the sense of being on the public markets, but in the sense of being public companies the way the Green Bay Packers are a public team in the world of sports betting. Right. For the companies that are the premier brand name companies that oftentimes are consumer based companies that attract the attention of all these investors. Yeah, you absolutely have a robust secondary market. But for a lot of other companies, I don't think that's the case. And for the vast majority of companies, I don't think it's easy to get a secondary transaction done. It can be done. And yeah, you'll take a haircut. But it is not just the haircut that's the issue. It's the fact that it is a whole incredible process. Now, at some point in time, will somebody create a liquid enough secondary market? Maybe. Color Me is skeptical for the companies that aren't well-known, but I still think that there is value to taking a company public. And again, that's because... Even if you're able to do some secondary selling, the vast majority of your wealth is still tied up in the company. Nobody's going to let you sell out your whole stake. And so ultimately it, there is still a need to go public to get a true liquidity event.
0: It is interesting. You brought up, we work as a real estate person. I remember we were came to Nashville, like everything, very, very heavy. And we went to meet with the regional head, the business development person and my capital markets guy. And I went there, took him to lunch broke down their business model. He explained to us their lease structures ten improvement dollars, etc. And we grilled them. We walked through the whole building. He was very open. And my friend and I were leaving the parking garage. And he looked at me and goes, I don't understand their fucking business model. (laughs) They don't make any money. And I said, yeah, I don't get it either. But we must just be missing something because they're growing like wildfire. (laughs) And then this whole thing plays out. Not that we were smarter than anybody else, but it gets to that IPO phase. right? And you've got these research analysts who are really smart, They dig in really quickly and all of a sudden they realize, bam, this is not what everyone thought it was. And that's kind of when everything fell apart. So I think from a public investment standpoint, the IPO market is still really important. And has a huge amount of
1: safeguards for the retail investor absolutely and that's the thing right we work was able to raise all these different rounds and keep doing what it was doing all through this outrageous behavior on the part of the founder or ceo and none of it mattered until it got to the point where the public markets were taking a look and all of a sudden there was so much more scrutiny all of a sudden this information was getting out there And I agree. The public markets do this tremendous service of bringing transparency to things. It's not perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. But it absolutely does help. I often tell the story of what happened with the Soviet space program. This is before the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of the things that the Soviet leadership did, they went to the scientists and said, you got to build us a, a space shuttle. And the scientists were like, well, it doesn't make sense to build a space shuttle. It doesn't actually save money over just the rockets we have, which work just fine. It's more dangerous. It, it takes a lot. It's going to be more expensive. I don't know why you'd want us to do it. And the Soviet leadership said, listen, the Americans are doing it and they're smarter than you. So there must be a good reason for doing it. Just freaking make a space shuttle. And that's the danger we of know pattern how that played matching. Out. <laughs> yeah. And that's the danger. Yeah, exactly. You could probably buy the scrapped space shuttle sitting, the space that they tried to create and clone off of the US space shuttle. And the scientists are like, why are we building this? And again, it all boils down to it's just not a matter of pattern matching. It's just not a matter of taking things on faith. It's a matter of ultimately doing your own analysis and being able to explain or not explain what's going on. What are the most interesting. Places to invest in tech
0: right now, in your opinion.
1: So I'm going to name two different spaces overall. The first space, which is very stereotypical, but I think is still very interesting, is the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the reason is quite simple. Just think of how much of what we do is handled by human intelligence and by human beings. I mean, this is insane. Just today, for example, I realized I had a 401k left over that I hadn't rolled over yet. So I was like, okay, I got to roll it over. And what did I do? So here I am. I'm this best-selling author and venture capitalist and all that stuff. What I had to do is I had to call up the provider and get an account set up. Get like a password picked out and then get on the phone with someone. Which took, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then they said, yes, we will send you a rollover form. And they emailed me the rollover form. And then I sat there with my finance guy and we printed it out and we filled this thing out. And we're like, what's this information? What's this information? What's this? And then finally at the end of it's like, oh, go get a signature medallion. And we called five different banks that I had accounts with until we found one. And then I drove over and got it because guess what? I'm the only one who could be there. I have to be there while I sign it. And I'm like, I just spent two hours doing this bullshit work for no good reason. I guess it's to protect me against fraud, but couldn't we do a better job with it? So I look at AI and ML and I say, there is an entire world of BS, manual process. People have to remember these fiddly little things just in order to make it work that should be automated. And we are just at the very beginning processes of this. And we see this happening all the time with direct consumer services, but also business-to-business services that are taking these completely broken things and just replacing it. Just think about how the, the docu-signs of the world have just completely eliminated the damned fax machines. Right? That's more of what we need. And then the other thing that I'm absolutely fascinated by, which is less of technology and more just something that I think we all as investors need to think about, is the globalization of companies, of entrepreneurship, of venture capital all around the world. And we actively, every week, look at other markets around the world, not just the U.S., especially not just Silicon Valley, because there is tons of interesting stuff going on. And the interesting thing is it's not just, hey, cut and paste this business model into other markets. Each market is different. Each market has its own set of circumstances. In some cases, the circumstances mean it's even better than the United States for launching a company. So I love the fact that there is now more and more globalization of entrepreneurship and innovation around the world.
0: Yeah, earlier today I did a podcast with a family office out of Lagos, Nigeria. And she threw some stats at me, just blew my mind. And average age in Nigeria is 18 years old. Yeah. The most arable land in the world is in Africa. Just all of these metrics where like the demographics are in their favor and it's just ready to explode. They're already way ahead of us in mobile payment, fintech, a lot of these other spaces that are growing like wildfire. So I agree with you. I think access to these things are really interesting. Let's go to the flip side. What are some sectors or plays, investment ideas right now that really scare
1: you? So I'm not sure if it necessarily scares me as much as it concerns me, which is we've now reached the point in the cycle where. As soon as there's a good idea, there are so many competitors funded with colossal amounts of money that I'm like, OK, how is this actually going to work? How can anyone pick a winner? So a great example of this is if we look over into the world of cryptocurrency, NFTs and things like that, I don't know how many deals I see that have been funded that are tackling this in some way, shape or form. And I actually wrote an essay about this on my own blog at Chrisier.com because I was looking at it and saying, oh, you know, we have this NFT phenomenon happening all, all the time. But we also have the Green Bay Packers selling shares of their stock to the public. And can we draw some sort of lessons by looking at what's happening with the Packers stock and the NFT world? And what I look at it and I concluded with the Packers is, you know, what you have is just the basics of economics. You have supply and demand. And on, the supply, on the demand side, you have a century's worth of Green Bay Packers fans that have built up over time, and they have oriented their entire lives around this sports franchise. Literally, the schedule of their weeks is determined by the Green Bay Packers schedule. So you have this demand, and then here you have the franchise, which is already publicly owned, selling 300,000 shares, and there's – Five, you're only allowed to buy up to 200 shares and there's five million Packers fans. At least that's the number of people who have, are members of the Packers fan page on Facebook. So I look at that and I say, okay, you have tightly constrained supply. There's only one Green Bay Packers franchise. They're doing a limited number of shares that they're selling and there's incredible demand. Of course they're going to sell it instantly. But then over here in the NFT world, we have 10 million companies that are providing the infrastructure for minting them. We have 10 million artists minting them like crazy. Everyone's trying to create another set. And I'm like, where's the demand coming from? Why are people buying into these things? And what's really clear is that the Green Bay Packers are a great example. You cannot resell Green Bay Packers stock. You cannot sell it. You can sell it back to the Packers at a massive loss. And you can transfer it to immediate family members subject to a certain number of rules so that you can basically will it to your children. But other than that, you can't sell it. So there's no speculative basis. It's the exact opposite over an NFT land, right? You've got a uh, demand, which is coming, seemingly coming out of thin air, which makes me spec, think that it's all just pure speculation because guess what? Nobody has said, I'm going to create NFTs which cannot be resold. Right. That literally goes against the whole point of what they're doing. So I look at that and I see, first of all, we funded all these companies in the space and that concerns me. And then there's the number of people themselves who are trying to get rich off of minting these things and building uh, coins and all these different things, Shiba, you know, you name it. And so I look at that and that fills me with terror because, you know, the thing about contagion is it spreads. People are like, oh, that's just a bunch of young holdlers. I'm like, yeah, you know what? If that whole industry suddenly implodes, the effects are going to be felt elsewhere. And I bet they're going to be far reaching, wide, and unpleasant.
0: Yeah. One of the younger guys that works with me five vexed his money on Dogecoin and bought a iPad, a new, like a brand new iPad with it. It was not a huge amount of like nominal dollar amount, but people wonder why we have inflation. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is what's happening here. And, but, you know, the other side is, and somebody said this at this conference that this week. It can be a, a crazy asset class, but doesn't mean it's a bad trade. So That's you, right. you can still
1: play it if you want. And the key, as um, I said, is if anyone wants to play in that space, look for assets where there is a source of demand and where the supply is actually limited. And the reason I think that the supply of NFTs is actually not limited, again, people are like, oh, no, it's limited edition. Only 10,000 of these exist. I'm like, yeah. And then there's 10 other people who are minting their own sets of 10,000 of a different, a slightly different thing every day. So that is effectively unlimited supply, not limited supply. Whereas the Green Bay Packers, that's limited supply. They ain't handing out any more franchises.
0: But that would indicate that crypto is actually a decent investment, right? Because aren't there true limitations within the code itself?
1: There are, but the question is why would you buy any one coin over another, yeah. right? The limitation – there are limitations on the number of NFTs in a particular series. There are limitations on the number of coins in crypto. But guess what? Anyone else can create coins, right? Bitcoin was the granddaddy of them all. And in some sense, I would argue that that probably gives it the greatest chance of, of working as a store of value, although it's unclear that it works as a store of value because it's so volatile, but you know, meanwhile, everyone doesn't say to themselves, "Well, let me buy Bitcoin." They say to themselves, "Let me create my own coin, and maybe it'll take off." And that's why the supply is unlimited. Even though the cryptocurrency is technically limited, the ability to get everyone to agree that this is the one that they should pay attention to is something that just cannot be done with unless you have market power. Lightning round. Yes. Do you think we're living in a simulation? No.
0: Do you think at some point we will solve the aging dilemma?
1: No, but we will extend our healthy lifespan. In our physical vessels or our consciousness? I think we'll be able to expand our physical vessels. I think it's very difficult to tell whether our consciousness persists when we upload. I do believe that we will eventually have very good simulations of people. And one of the reasons I do so many podcast guest appearances and write so much is I hope that they create an artificial Chrissier someday. (laughs) Are you
0: bullish or bearish on the metaverse?
1: I am bearish on calling it the metaverse. I am bullish on the fake world being better than the real world for a lot of people. Interesting. In terms of their avatars versus their real life. Uh, here's what I think. And again, this goes oh, this goes back. I'm like, let, to put it bluntly, real life for a lot of people sucks. And there's a reason why we play video games. Because in a video game, if I'm having a bad day and I want to go gun a b- bunch of people down, I can do that and there won't be any consequences. And the metaverse, oh, I think that Scott Adams, who is a colorful character who's gotten in a lot of trouble himself, but who once said something, which is, the holodeck will be the last invention mankind ever creates. Because once you have a holodeck, why would you ever spend time in real life anymore? And that's a bit glib, but I think that there's a lot of truth to that. So I think that, yes, the idea of there being artificial worlds into which we can escape is going to be a very powerful one. I don't believe that where we are right now and what Facebook has put out so far in terms of Oculus and whatnot gets us to that point. Best investment you ever made? The best investment I ever made was this is a funny one i'm going to say the best investment i ever made was taking a peer counseling class when i was in college at stanford because i think that you know i was a young arrogant punk i didn't really understand human nature particularly well and learning how to develop empathy for others has probably been more important to my career and life happiness than just about anything else
0: worst investment <laughs>
1: One of the angel investments that taught me a lesson, it didn't cost me that much, thank goodness, but it did cost me some – was I invested in a company. I had gotten a couple of early successes. And so I felt like I was brilliant because I'd made money, something that I think happens to a lot of people in the industry. And I remember meeting with an entrepreneur. I was introduced by a mutual friend. He was working on something in an area where I had some expertise. And I was like, listen, I think what you're doing is really smart. And let me tell you, I have a perfect record. Everything I invest in turns to gold <laughs> and I have no problem being the first investor in your company. And of course, I lost all that money. And what it taught me is don't mistake being lucky for being smart and have a sense of self-awareness and humility, and you'll hold on to your money a lot longer. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining me. It was awesome. It was my pleasure. I just got to say, I seldom have an interview where somebody is able to dive so deep, get into so many interesting areas. I really appreciate the work that you did in advance, and I'm so glad I got a chance to come on.
0: It's just cool to hear your voice live one-on-one as opposed to over the phone. I follow your blog. I follow your stuff on social media. I've obviously listened to your book. If people want
1: to hear about your writing, learn about your podcast, what's the best way for them to connect with you? In general, people can just go look up chrisyeh.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. It's got pointers to most things that I do. And, you know, always love interacting with people. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, that's also chrisye. It's relatively easy to find me and again i just love interacting i love sharing the ideas you'll see that you know i think i'm generally a a pretty respectful guy so please feel free to engage
0: Awesome, chris thanks for making some time on a friday i hope you have a great weekend
1: my pleasure and hey do we still have time to get you to that happy hour
0: (laughs) i got one minute we're running out of daylight
1: but we're right there so thank you brian thank you so much for having me on and have a drink on me sounds good Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.